next weekend, it's not Super Bowl weekend, that's coming in two weeks, but next weekend is a really important weekend. It's super important, so think about that. It's super important that you're here, because we're going to have a, an update on the vision and the mission of this church. You know, our mission is changing lives to change the world, and last May, we started to look out in the future and say, this is what we believe God is leading us to do, and we're going to have an opportunity now to look back these last eight months, and where, by God's grace, have we come, and then... Where does the leadership see us going in the next three years, and how can you be a part of that? So really, really important stuff, exciting things to, uh, to wrestle with together. And then that night, the prayer gathering at 6 p.m. right here in this room, so a week from tonight, um, we'll be gathering together. Our high school students will be leading us in some times of singing together, but most of that hour spent praying, thanking God for you, asking for his help as we Look ahead to the years ahead. And so I hope that you'll mark that on your calendars and join us for that really important weekend. Now, we're in the midst of our series, Christianity Explained. We're trying to get to the crux of what is this thing all about, following Christ. And what we've learned is it's all about Jesus. It's all about who he is, the Son of God, and what he did. He died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again from the dead on the third day. This one, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, has a rightful claim on your life and on mine. And those who are followers of Christ, a Christian, believes these things. That Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for my sins, and that he isn't dead. He actually is a living Savior. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. He conquered the curse conquered sin, and he can offer us new life because he's alive, and he conquered death. Now today, and in two weeks, what we're going to be looking at, okay, so what does it mean then to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior? Well, what does it mean to have him be, in a sense, the master of our life, the one who has rightful claim over every area of our life? And what we're looking at today is that we understand that we come into this relationship not by our good works. It's the very thing that Greg just shared about in his story of grace. It's not about what we bring. It's about what he's brought to us in his grace through his son Christ. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey says, grace is the last good word. And what he means by that is when you chase down the, the meanings of the word grace in our dictionary today and how we use it today, you realize that everywhere you see a form of that word, you see vestiges of the glory of that word grace, the greatness of that word grace. So, for example, we um, sit at the table and we say grace. We're acknowledging that the food in front of us is a gift from God, and so we thank him for it. We think of that word grateful, an expression of gratitude for someone's kindness. We're gratified by good news. We're congratulated when successful. We say a person is gracious when they extend a gift of hospitality to us. We use grace notes in a musical score to embellish the melody. Royalty in England are, are referenced as your grace. 
even the New York publishers get into it when they use this phrase, gracing their subscribers by giving them a few extra copies of the magazine beyond their paid subscription. All of these meanings, all of these variations of grace, all positive. And that's why it shouldn't surprise us that the word that most often modifies this word grace, especially with God's people, the word that we most often place in front of it is the very word that we've been using as we've been singing about it today. Amazing. Amazing grace. Some of us know that about grace. It's amazing that God would respond to us in this kind of way. It's absurd. It's, it's unbelievable. Some of us have never really understood that. And some of us have forgotten it. So what's so amazing about grace? We're going to kind of take two, three shots at answering. What's so amazing about grace? The first is God. God is what's so amazing about grace. God reveals himself in his word as a God of grace. He tells us that the good news that he's giving us is a gospel of grace. We know that Jesus Christ came in the fullness of grace. John 1.14 And the Holy Spirit is referenced in Hebrews 10 as the spirit of grace. And as long as God has been dealing with people like you and me, we have seen grace flowing out from the very beginning when Adam and Eve, eyes wide open, disobeyed God, rejected his word, doubted his goodness and said, hey, you know what? We know you said we're not supposed to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but we're going to do it anyways. And God's grace began to flow. It covered them, just like we sang. Like rain covering them, grace covered them. And, and you see the symbolism of his grace covering them physically as they walk out of God's very presence covered in the animal skins that died that they might be protected as they go out. In the midst of the curse where God utters words of judgment against them, grace is flowing when he makes that unbelievable promise to Adam and Eve. One of your descendants, Eve, she is going to crush the enemy's head. And the promise continues to point forward this one who would be Abraham's descendant through whom all the families of the world would be graced, would be blessed. Our God is a God of grace. When Moses wants to get a better glimpse of God's character and and the glory of who he is, God says, okay, I'll do that. In Exodus 34, verse 6, we read, And he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, revealing in the proclamation what he's like, these words. God on himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That's who God is. He is a gracious God who loves to act graciously to people who are the least deserving of it. And so in Isaiah, the people of God, they've got into idolatry. Their hearts are far from God. Compounding their sin, they weren't taking care of the people that were most vulnerable in their day. The widows, the orphans, the poor, the refugees. They, they were not caring for them. They were taking advantage of them. And in the midst of this situation where they were going the opposite direction of God, 
The prophet Isaiah, speaking for God, says this. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Did you hear that? He longs to be gracious to you. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. And I'd encourage you to put your name right in the middle of that text. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you, Mark. The the Lord longs to be gracious to even people who are turning their back on God. What's so amazing about grace? The God of grace who would meter out his grace in a way that will never run dry to the least deserving of people. We see this in Jesus' life when he meets the woman who's been caught in adultery. The story is in John chapter 8. Jesus is in the temple courts. The temple courts was that location before you got into the, to the inner parts of the temple where everybody could gather, the men, the women, the Gentiles. They're all there. He's teaching, and they're waiting on him with bated breath on his every word. And all of a sudden, there's a ruckus. There's a group of religious leaders. They come dragging this woman in. She doesn't look very good. Not just physically she doesn't look very kempt, but emotionally she is completely distraught. She's been caught in the very act of adultery. They bring her in to Jesus and say, Jesus, we caught her in the act. The law of Moses is clear. We're supposed to stone her. What do you think we should do? Trying to trap him. Trying to trap him. So what does the text tell us? Jesus gets down on his knee and he starts writing. Starts writing in the dirt. We don't know. We don't know what he's writing. I'm wondering if he's writing a whole bunch of different sins because when he stands up and gives his answer, what does he say? Okay, you, the first one here who can say, I've never sinned, you cast the first stone. Then he got down on his knees. He started writing some more. And as he's writing, you could hear the rocks thud down on the ground. From the oldest to the youngest, they all walk away. And he looks up to the woman. He says, well, where are your accusers? She says, I don't have any. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Wow. Jesus, full of grace to the least deserving of people, like this woman caught in adultery, like Judas who betrayed him and Peter who denied him, the religious leaders who crucified him, he forgave him, the thief on the cross who hung next to him, to people like me people like you. I wonder this morning if you have a clear sense of that you don't deserve it. Or or have we actually tricked ourselves into thinking we do? Augustine has this wonderful quote. He says this, God gives where he finds empty hands. God gives grace where he finds someone who has empty hands. What does that mean? What did he mean by that? I think what he was getting at has a lot to do with the story Jesus told about two men, one whose hands were full and one whose hands were empty. The passage is in Luke chapter 18. And the context we have here from Luke is to some who were confident of their own righteousness, of their own good deeds, and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this story, this parable. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. A Pharisee in Jesus' day was a religious leader. These people were meticulous about keeping every aspect of the law. And they prided themselves in their religious pursuit of God. So one of them was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. All right? Tax collector. Tax collector was known as a, as a scoundrel, as a cheat. So you got this religious guy over here and you got the, the cheating tax collector over here. Polar opposites in terms of moral ethical behavior. All right? So the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisees' hands were full of what? His righteousness. All the things that he had done for God that he thought, this ought to count for something. God ought to be pleased with me. Look at all the sacrifices I'm making for you, God. His hands were full, so full, Augustine's right. He couldn't receive grace because he didn't think he needed it. He couldn't even see it with all the packages of good works blinding his vision. And then there's a man with empty hands. He has nothing to bring. In fact, when it comes to his approach to God, he's moving backwards. He doesn't belong in his presence. He's beating his breasts. He says, I have nothing to give. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What does Jesus say? I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified, right with God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God we have been singing about. What's so amazing about grace? God is. And the grace that he gives to people that are undeserving, people actually who deserve something far different. And so I wonder if there's anybody here this morning who actually you've put yourself in this category that what I've done is so bad that God could never love me. The teaching in the Bible is that couldn't be further from the truth. His love and His grace is there for everyone. It's there for you. What's so amazing about grace? Not just the giver of it, but now the gift itself. It's a free gift. It's not anything we can earn or deserve. It's not something God has to do. God has to be just, which means he has to right every wrong. He doesn't have to be merciful to not give us what we deserve. And he certainly doesn't have to be gracious to give us what we don't deserve. It's out of his good pleasure that God extends his grace. And there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve this gift. So what does that look like in our day? 
Well, what it looks like is this past week, someone comes up to you and said, I got two tickets. I got two tickets to the game. And you're going, oh, my word. Please, Lord, let it not be a Badger game this week. We're hoping for something bigger. Yeah, for the game at Lambeau. Really? Yeah. Do you want them? Do I want them? Yeah. I'd love to go. Well, and, and, and they're in a box. Is that okay? It's heated there. And like the caterers come and they bring the food. Really? In a box? Yeah? I don't have to wear 14 layers of clothes? Wow. This guy doesn't owe you anything. You didn't buy him from someone else. Didn't buy him from him to give to you. It's just a free gift that he gives to you. And you go, wow. Wow. It's grace. It's a gift. It's a free gift. It's on the house. That ever happened to you? On the house? What do we mean by on the house? Well, if you're in a restaurant, like I was a couple weeks ago over Christmas, we all ordered, and I ordered my pizza, and you know I made it clear I, I'm kind of allergic to these green peppers, and so if you could just kind of keep that off the pizza, that'd be great. Kind of got this wimpy Swiss palate going. So, you know, pizza comes out, and yeah, there's green peppers. So... She saw it, took it back, and apologized and started making new pizza. Well, by the time this pizza gets to the table, everybody else finished their... Is there a review? I mean, everybody else was done. And it was taking a long time. So she comes back to me and she says, Now, don't worry. I'm really sorry about it. But it's on the house. You don't, you don't have to pay for it. We're going to cover our mistake. We want to keep you as a loyal customer. So it's on the house. It's on us. Well... God's grace doesn't cover his mistakes. His grace covers ours, and it's on the house. It's free. It's free. Undeserved, unearned favor of God. The scriptures are really clear. We are people who have made mistakes. The Bible calls it sin. And the Bible is clear. It says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean, to fall short of the glory of God? It means that we haven't met the mark. Well, what is the mark? The mark is the glory of God. Well, what does that mean, the glory of God? Well, Jesus lived out what it means to live a life that's on the standard of living to the glory of God. Always did the Father's will. Always loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And always loved his neighbors himself perfectly. Every day, every moment. Not just in what he said and what he did, but what he thought. Perfect. And the Bible's making it clear, none of us have done that. We've tried, but we're somewhere below that mark. We've fallen short of God's standard. The Bible also says in 1 John... If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we actually think we haven't sinned, then we're deceived. I've never met a person who's ever said that, but I suppose it's possible for someone to say, I've never sinned, so I'm in. The Bible says, you're in la-la land, if you think that. That's what you're in. So it's a free gift. It's the pleasure of God. There's nothing we can do. So the end of the day, our good works, as good as they are, and the Bible says they're not as good as we think they are, aren't good enough. 
So I think about conversations I've had with people when, as a high school pastor, we take students out, teaching them how to share their faith. And as we'd go out, there are two questions that we invariably ask people. The first is this. If you were to die tonight in a car accident, would you know for sure, 100%, that you go to heaven? And the second was, if you were to die tonight in a car accident and stand before God at the gate of heaven, and he were to say to you, why should I let you in? How would you respond to his question? What would you say? So why don't you just try those questions on yourself this morning? 100% sure you know where you're going? And what would you say to God in response to why you deserve heaven? Invariably, the first question would get things, uh, get a response like this. You know, I'm, I'm not really sure. In fact, I don't think anybody can be sure. I really don't. So I don't know, but I, I'm okay because I don't think anybody can know that. And then you say, well, that's really interesting because John at the end of his gospel says these things were written, John 20, 31, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing in him that you might have life forever. So you can know. That's why the Bible was written. Oh. And when it comes to that second question, what would you say to God? Boy, not always, but almost always. You'd start getting this list. Well, I've tried to be a good person. Okay? Like the Ten Commandments. I don't know why. The Ten Commandments always came up. I've tried to keep the Ten Commandments. Okay? I've gone to church. I've gone to Sunday school. I've been baptized. I I try to treat people like I want them to treat. You know, the Golden Rule, they have tried. And what was interesting is the person who was always resting in what they've tried to do was the person who always wasn't sure. Because the nagging question when we answer the second question like that is, I wonder if it's good enough. I mean, I'm really hoping God grades on a curve. But what if he doesn't? And the question asked is, well, how good do you think you have to be? How good do you have to be to get in? And that's where a lot of us, we kind of have this scale mentality. Well, just, uh, I got to have just a little bit more good than the junk in my life. And if the, ta- if the scale's tipping that way, I think I'm in. So I think what we're saying is, I need to be 51% good. And if I get to 51%, man, I'm in. Right? The scriptures say, from the words of Jesus himself, Matthew 5, 48, you're to be perfect. Perfect? Come on, Lord. Perfect? You know I'm not perfect. That's exactly right. That's why I died. It was just a matter of your good works. Why would I die on the cross for you if all you needed to do was just get to 51%? It's a free gift. It cannot be earned or deserved. There is no clearer passage than the one we've already read twice this morning. So let's read it again. Ephesians 2. The beginning of chapter 2, Paul is talking about how because of sin in our life, we are spiritually dead, we're under God's judgment, we're facing God's wrath because we've rebelled against Him and sin deserves judgment in God's kingdom. And so now he says, grace brings something completely new to the paradigm. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, in our sins. It is by grace 
you have been saved. Then go down to the very end here, verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This teaching that we're saved by God's grace alone, not by our good works, is at the heart of the Christian message. And it's right there in verse 8. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. That, that faith has the object of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on the cross. And this, our salvation and our faith, is not from ourselves. It's not something we get by mustering it up. Going, I can save myself through my good deeds. I can believe this. I'm just going to believe. I'm going to believe. I believe. And it's not like that. It's a gift that allows us to believe. That faith is a gift. It is a gift. That grace, Jesus' death on the cross for us. It is a gift, that grace, where God would wash our sins clean. It's not from ourselves. It's the gift of God. And it's clear, it is not by works. If it were, we'd all get to heaven and high-five each other and say, yeah, I got in too. Way to go, buddy. You were on that path. Well, I was just 51.5, but I got there. No, it's all his glory because it's all by grace. Well, what are the implications? The first is good works can't save us. For those of you desperately wanting a relationship with God, desperately, maybe you don't even know you want that right now. You just know something big is missing. What you need to know is It's not about your good works. It's about Christ's good work on the cross. So Titus says it again, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified, made right with God by his grace we might become heirs, children, children of God having the hope of eternal life. Our good works can't save us. And so there's some of us actually that are here this morning that have a false hope. And you know it. Because when you answered the first question, you said, I'm not sure. It's because you have a false hope and your hope is resting on your goodness. And the Bible says you can't rest there. It's not good enough. We've got to put our hope in Christ's good work on the cross. The second implication, if we're saved by grace, then we never leave grace at the door. There's this beautiful picture in Hebrews chapter 10 that says, since we have entered in the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies, through a new and living way, this new entrance, this new doorway, and the doorway, he says, is the body and blood of Christ. How do we get into God's presence? How do we have a relationship with him? It's through Christ. He has torn down. When Christ dies on the cross and the temple in the and the curtain in the temple splits from top to bottom, there's huge things going on where God is saying, now the way to me is ripped open by Christ's death. And so we go, I know that. It's by grace, through faith in Christ, what he did on the cross, that I come into now this new life. And I have forgiveness, and I have peace, and I have hope. And I got a meaning for why I live this life. 
that we don't check grace at the door and say, okay, now I keep going. Grace is behind me, but I keep going. And all of a sudden we start going in this mentality. It says it's all good works now. And somehow we left grace behind, forgetting that grace is, is more than that which just saves us. It's that which sustains us and empowers us. It's that which transforms us to be more like Christ every day of our life. We desperately need it for every breath that we draw. We need his grace. And Paul says, don't ever set it aside. Galatians 2.21, don't ever set it aside. How would we do that? Well, we set aside grace when we start walking through the door and walking with Christ and we forget who we are, a sinner saved by grace. We set it aside when when we let bitterness come in and someone's wronged us. And it doesn't take long in life, does it, for someone to wrong you. And when you harbor that hurt and invite it in, it becomes this root of bitterness that destroys grace. It chokes it off. Pride pushes grace away like that proud Pharisee. Legalism kills grace. Where we, in effect, say, Jesus' death on the cross, it wasn't enough. I need something more. In the New Testament, the something more was always a going back to the law, specifically to circumcision. That was a big deal as the gospel went out to the Gentiles and they heard about Christ and they put their faith in Christ. And then there were these Judaizers that came on the heels of the gospel and said, but Jesus isn't enough. You you follow Jesus, but you better get circumcised. You better keep keeping the law. And it makes a mockery of the cross. Nobody's preaching circumcision in our day, but there's all kinds of legalism. It says, well, if you're going to follow Christ, you need to do this and don't do that. And you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this. And all of a sudden, what happens is a legalism that kills. It kills the spirit of, of grace, of Christ, of life in him. And it does truly say that Christ's death, in, in effect, was not enough. I needed something more. Legalism kills it. And then don't turn grace into a license to sin. Jude chapter 1 verse 4 talks about this. And he mirrors the teaching of Romans 6 when Paul says, Do we sin that grace may abound? And the thinking here is, well, look, I know who God is. I believe he's gracious. He's abounding in love. He's he's merciful and he's forgiving. I know this is wrong what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it anyways because I know there's always more grace. That is not the response to grace. That is truly setting grace. You think you're going forward with grace? You are not going forward with grace. You've abandoned grace and you've abandoned Christ. The response to God's grace is one of gratefulness that lives out a life of obedience, expressing our love to him in those ways. So the scriptures say, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Is it possible There's some of us here this morning that we've just done that. We we check grace at the door. With all our hearts, we believe that that's how we're saved. But it's not with us anymore. We don't travel with grace. We've lost it. Third answer to the question, what's so amazing about grace? Not only the giver, God, not just the nature of the gift, but the result, it works. That's the amazing thing about grace. It works. 
It works to save us and to make us right before God. It works to transform us. So it's, it, it works as, as we deal with the past stuff of our life. It, it's working today as it continues to change us to be more like Christ. And, and it works out in the future as it's not only sustaining us today, but as it's calling us home, filling us with hope and promise. And until then, this grace is working in us, and now it's flowing through us. And so the big hang-up for a lot of people when they say, man, are you telling me it's not about what I do? That gets me to heaven? Good works have nothing to do with the equation? And the answer is, yeah. When it comes to coming into a relationship with God, grace has nothing to do with that. I mean, good works have nothing to do with that. It's all about grace. But the Bible is clear that when God's grace has changed our life, that what happens then is the grace flows through us in such a way that good deeds, that God's grace and goodness continues to go out to the undeserving. And so, in verse 10, having just said, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, all that, we read in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good works don't save us, God's grace does. But grace produces a life of good works. Did did you read that? that God has prepared in advance for you to do. That before you were ever born, God had all these plans for how he was going to let you be a conduit of grace so that his mercy, his kindness, his compassion, his patience, his abounding love, his forgiveness would flow through you and grace many, many people. The Bible speaks about this in Matthew 5, 16, not just here in Ephesians 2, 10. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds. And in seeing your good deeds and the brightness of Christ's radiance shining through those good deeds in your life, they'll glorify God. They'll live to the glory of God. The Bible calls that the fruit of a Christian's life or like a tree that bears this kind of fruit, the fruit of good works. A constant flow. So why is it then that the very people that were drawn to Jesus, almost like a magnet, the undeserving of society. Remember how the religious leaders were always said, Jesus, why do you keep hanging around sinners? Because sinners kept hanging around Jesus. Why is it the very people that were drawn to Jesus Christ when he walked this earth are the very people today that often are repelled by his followers? Door Creek is a place, this is what I know, this is a place that is full of grace. And may we never leave anyone with the impression that there's not room for them here. There's a radio show on um, one of the stations, a Christian station, they were discussing the topic, why don't you go to church? lady calls and says, well, I've been divorced two times. And I, don't, I don't think there's room for me back at church. Today's Right to Life Sunday. We remember 50 million babies who've been killed in the last 30 plus years. And maybe you've had an abortion. 
there's room for you in this place because we believe in grace and there's not one of us that would say we deserve it. And if we say that, we don't understand it. There, there is room until we understand that grace is for everyone, for the mass murderer, for the mob hitman, for the person that's, that's wronged us and hurt us and maybe hurt our children, destroyed our careers or whatever it is, that until we understand it's for everyone, we haven't understood it's for us. And Door Creek, may this always be a place where a person comes through here and go, man, I'm attracted to grace. I don't even know what to call it. I don't even know what it is, but I'm attracted to this place like they were in Jesus' day to our Savior. The sad reality is we can sing about it and pray about it and preach it and believe it and and not live it. Not live it. I wonder where you need to grow in grace I know where I need to grow. I'm not going to tell you. A person who's full of grace will always believe that Christ's death is enough. They will not revert to legalism. A person that's full of grace will regularly extend Christ's kindness, mercy, and compassion to those in need, to the undeserving. People who are filled with grace will forgive those who've wronged them. People who are filled with grace are patient with others, have words that are seasoned with grace, Colossians 4, 6, that build up rather than tear down. People that are filled with grace are not negative, critical people, but they're people that are full of gratitude This world is hungry for grace, hungry for it. May they find it flowing through us, his people. Let's pray. God, you are a great God. And the truth is, for all that we can say about the greatness of your grace, it's the tip of the iceberg. And the more we know about who we are, the more we celebrate your grace. For those who come this morning, they have no hope. May they find their hope in your grace, in this gift extended through your Son. For those who've left grace aside, by your grace, will you help them recover your amazing grace? And for those of us who have choked it off in different ways, would you continue to make us people who are full of your grace so that they would know more of you and be ready for your soon coming, finding hope in this world and in the next. In Jesus' name, the one who's full of grace, we pray, amen.